All right, praise the Lord. Let's open our Bibles this morning. I'm excited to study God's Word and to uh, work through it. And so, so interesting, isn't it, to, to actually go through books of the Bible chapter by chapter. You encounter things that uh, sometimes you think, huh, I, that's in the Bible? Or uh, you stuff that you would never uh, really read hardly or, or certainly teach on. We're in an exciting area of Scripture, though, studying the life of David some of the things that happened to him uh, during uh, the, the course of the life of the man after God's own heart. We find ourselves in chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 24. That's our text. The topic we're going to find there is this. Joab devises a plan to have Absalom return from banishment for having killed his brother. The title of our message, Ban of Brother. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. And I pray that you would richly anoint it to our hearts and lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, caregivers are told to always assume a person in a coma can hear you. I had no real experience with comatose individuals until one day about, uh, I'm going to guess 20 years ago, but everything to me is either 5 years ago or 20 years ago. I really have no memory of of most, most, but I think it was about 20 years ago. I was called to the hospital to visit a patient who was in a coma and not expected to regain consciousness. He was the unsaved husband of a dear sister here at the church. I don't think I really believed he could hear me, but I presented the gospel and I told him to ask the Lord to save him before he died. Uh, There was no response, no squeezing of the hand or blinking of the eyes or anything like that. He recovered, which led me to think I should have prayed for his healing. Uh, After he recovered, he told me he had heard me and that he did receive the Lord. He lived quite a few years longer, but has since gone home to be with the Lord. For me, it became an example of the extraordinary means God can use in order to save those who are perishing. In our text this morning, there's a verse that has brought a great deal of comfort to many who have lost loved ones whom they are not really sure if they were saved. The verse doesn't promise they were saved, but it declares the great lengths God has gone to and will go to to save them. It's verse 14 where you read, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but He devises means so that His banished ones are not expelled from Him. The words portray God taking the initiative, reaching out to save all who are banished, wanting to restore them. He has a plan and devises means to explain that plan, not being willing that any should perish, but that all would have the opportunity of eternal life. Let's explore the heart of God regarding his banished ones. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God means to reach you who were banished and call you his sons. And number two, God's means to reach you who were banished cost him his son. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 17. Uh, about God meaning to reach us. Now, David's son, Absalom, he had planned and executed the murder of his brother, Amnon, and then had fled the country. David loved Absalom and he longed for his return. As a father, he might be excused for overlooking the murder, but not as the king. As the king, he had an obligation to execute justice. Joab, David's courageous but crafty commander-in-chief, decided to help David with his dilemma. And so we pick up the story in verse 1. 
So Joab, the son of Zuriah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. Joab had David's best interests in mind. A father was missing his son. He probably also had the best interest of the nation in mind. Absalom seemed the very best candidate to succeed David on the throne. Absalom was very popular with the people and his absence from kingdom life undoubtedly was having a demoralizing effect. In about a chapter, however, Joab is going to regret his decision. Absalom will rebel against David, tearing the kingdom away from him. It's pretty clear to me, at least, that Joab was not really being led by the Lord in these devices. Good intentions are no substitute for prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I guess the bottom line is, if you want to be frank, we're not really smart enough to figure out exactly what should be done in every situation. Uh, And though we may have good intentions to help individuals or to do good things, uh, we really need God to lead us because he sees a little bit farther than we do. And so I I think Joab had nothing but the best intentions, uh, but it was absolutely, uh, it's going to turn out very badly as as we're going to see uh, for David and for Absalom and for the nation. Uh, Verse 2, and Joab sent to Tekoa. And brought from there a wise woman, and he said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner, and put on mourning apparel, and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who's been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Nathan the prophet had earlier come to David with a parable that exposed his sins and led him to repent of his sins of adultery and murder. Joab is mimicking what Nathan did, only they are his words, not the Lord's. Joab put the words in her mouth. We should not try to duplicate the moving of God's spirit in the energy of our own flesh. When we do, the results are, to be kind, less than spiritual. This happens all the time. Uh, you know, we, we, um, I have to be careful because not everything that everybody does is always, you know, the flesh. But, uh, it, it's very common for, you know, somebody to, to go somewhere and to see something and, and maybe there's a move of the Spirit and something's happening and then you think, okay, I want to do that back where I am. I want to bring that over here. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and then when that's not happening over here, you think, well, I'm going to make it happen over here because that is, I was really touched and it was a blessing. And if God can do it there, then he can do it here. Our point has always been God can do something else here. Uh, God has his own plan for right here. And we should be seeking uh, his mind and his heart for us rather than for some other group. I I've come over the years to to really be um, I have to be is a fine line between critical and cynical, you know, uh, but I'm very critical of things that sweep through the church uh, where, you know, God is doing something and then all of a sudden every church has to do that same thing. Oh, are you guys doing this? Yeah, no. What's the matter with you? 
This is what God is doing everywhere right now, uh, as if God can only do one thing at a time. You know, as it, it, it makes me think that God is very single-minded. You know, the, the way we portray him. It's like, please don't bother me with any other ideas right now. I have to do this program right now in every church in America. You know, and once we're through with that, we'll move on to the next thing. Uh, and, and so we just want to be seeking the Lord. And so, you know, Joab means well. He thinks, you know, Nathan had some success with David with this story thing that, that he went and told. Maybe I could come up. And he comes up with a really pretty good story, as a matter of fact. And, and it's well acted out. Uh, but it, it's all Joab. Uh, and it, it turns out very badly. Verse 4, And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. In case David didn't understand, uh, you know that. Uh, now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver whom uh, who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother, whom he killed. We will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Uh, you got to give Joab props for creativity. I mean, this is not, not just a great backstory, well acted, but it's actually very pertinent to David, as we'll see. Two sons fought. Well, that's reminiscent of the fact that we remember from previous studies that for about two years, there had been bad blood between Absalom and his brother Amnon because Amnon had sexually assaulted Absalom's sister uh, uh, Tamar. They were brothers, but from different mothers. And, and so Amnon raped uh, Tamar. David did nothing about it. And so these two brothers, uh, they weren't actually physically fighting, but there was a huge, huge conflict between these two brothers. Uh, it, then it says, there was no one to part them. That's actually a subtle slam on David whose inaction in dealing with Amnon's rape of Absalom's sister certainly contributed to Amnon's murder. You have to think that if David had done something, that perhaps Absalom at least may not have been in a position to murder uh, his brother. Uh, and so, uh, so the woman says they were fighting and nobody, you know, no one did anything. There were times, you know, when my brothers would fight, my older brothers would, they were closer in age, got two older brothers that are closer in age, then there's a little bit of a gap, then there's me, and then there's a bigger gap in my little brother, so now you know why I'm all screwed up. But uh, it's all this, you know, kind of... Uh, what, what happens with the third child? Is I think the third child is actually pretty good. But anyway, uh, anyway, I used to, you know, I'd watch my older brothers fight, and then, you know, I didn't ever think they were going to kill each other, uh, but my dad would step in, and that would be the end of it, you know? Uh, I mean, that... And sometimes you're, you're hoping that your dad will step in. You know, because you're getting smothered down there, you know, uh, and so or my brother, my next oldest brother, Richard, who I love dearly, he never wanted to play with me. Let's can I let's just do this right now. Let's just get this out of the way. 
he would, he never, I mean, he had older friends. How old is Richard? He's like 60, he's 10 or 12 years older than, I think he's, he's at least 10 years older than me. And so when I'm a little kid, he's, you know, in high school and so he didn't want to play with me. Uh, and I understand. And so, and so one time he was playing football with my cousin Mike and I wanted to play football. And then my dad yelled at him and said, play football with the kid, you know, and so he threw a spiral into my stomach so hard that I, he knocked me out. He, I fainted. Uh, and then I think my dad knocked him out, you know, so, so there are times when you want your dad to really have now to be fair to Richard, he did save my life literally on two different occasions. Uh, one time I was drowning in, in my uncle's pool while everybody was just watching me drown. I think they had a little bit too much wine. And so he came out and rescued me. But uh, so, you know, that's the full orb story of my life. But, you know, so you just some, you know, there was nobody there to part these brothers, David. Uh, and so this is going to come home to him. I feel very cathartic right now. So <laughs> you guys are blessed. I won't do this second service. So you'll say, hey, do you hear about jeans? You know, no. What are you talking about? You know, now the heir to the throne Absalom was in danger of being executed. That's another point of contact. Just as she would have no heir to carry on uh, her uh, husband's name, which is very important in the Jewish culture, more so than it is in in many modern cultures, uh, the heir would be killed. And so verse 8, the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. This is kind of David's way of saying, let me think about it. He wasn't ready to render a judgment. But the woman pressed in on him. Verse 9, And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. This is insightful. It's a recognition that what she was asking was outside of God's law. And so she had asked David basically to ignore the fact that her one son was a murderer. And David said, you know, I'm going to have to think about that. Which is something that you say when the answer is no, and you just don't want to say that. And so she said, look, I know what the problem is. The problem is I'm asking you to do something that you really shouldn't do, that you really can't do as the king. You can't just overlook a murder. And so let the guilt be on me and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless, which is actually an empty promise. I mean, you can't really take, you know, if, you, if the king breaks God's law, she can't take it upon herself. Uh, but she's probably just plying him and saying, you know, uh, just say you were overwhelmed by, you know, my emotion or whatever. And so verse 10, the king said, OK, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. And so David's kind of want to go a little bit halfway here. Uh, And then she said, please let the king remember the Lord, your God, do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So, David, it looks like his second strategy was to put some kind of a warning out. He goes, well, I, I can't really just pardon this guy, but let me just say if, you know, one of these things that if you kill her son, Well, boy, are you going to be in trouble? And so she says, no, no, no. Stop the avenger of blood, which is what they call that. They had a pretty interesting system in those days is a kind of a Sicilian system. I like to call it. If someone killed someone in your family, then someone from your family killed them. Uh, And and uh, they also had cities of refuge in 
Israel. So if you're out in the field and you accidentally kill somebody, or any place for that matter, if, if it's a case of manslaughter, you went to the city of refuge, and then they would hear your case, and then they would make a judgment. And if it turned out to be manslaughter, there were certain penalties, but not the death penalty. If it turned out to be murder, the city of refuge offered you no hope because then you were executed by the avenger of blood, by the person in the other person's family who was the designated Guido uh, to take care of those kinds of things. Uh, and so she, David says, I'll warn everybody that they're going to be in big trouble. And she says, no, you have to stop this right now. And so then David finally, he gives in. David's a sucker. This is why sometimes they never let you get to important people because they're suckers, you know. They don't like to say no. They have all this power and stuff. But when you really get into their face, it's like, all right, you know. David was like that. So she goes for the clothes and got David to definitely commit. Her son was effectively pardoned by David. So verse 12, therefore the woman said, please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, why not? Basically, you know, she'd already worn him down. And so the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Wow, this is bold. It's like calling David a hypocrite because he was willing to do something for her that he wasn't doing for himself and for the nation. By the way, boldness by itself isn't always an indicator that the Lord is using someone to rebuke you. The content of their message must also be from the Lord. And so a lot of times, you know, a person will come and they'll seem really confident or they'll seem like they have a lot of authority and they'll say something to you. They'll sort of rebuke you in the Lord and you think, well, I guess that's from the Lord because look at the confidence. Sometimes it's just bluster. There's a difference between boldness and bluster. You know, is, is what's being said biblical and spiritual? Uh, and in this case, it, it really isn't. Again, I'd say it is a little like Nathan saying to David, you're the man, only it sounds earthly and fleshly. It wasn't leading David to repent of anything. In fact, it was asking him to ignore God's law and restore Absalom without dealing with the fact that he was a murderer. There was no resolve in this. It was just, why don't you forget about Absalom having killed Amnon and bring him back? Uh, and so that's not the kind of thing that God is going to do. Uh, he, he, you know, there, there needs to be a, a recognition of the murderer and a, uh, uh, you know, a, they have to deal with the fact that Absalom's a murderer. Verse 14, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. A loved one dies. Maybe they made a profession of faith once a long time ago. Maybe they never did. At least you don't think they did or you don't know if they did. And so this verse is a great comfort. It isn't saying everyone will get saved in the end. But it does show you that God not only has devised the overall means to save human beings, but that he works in each individual to bring them to a decision affecting their eternity. Verse 15, now, therefore, I've come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. 
And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the king in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Uh, Did Nathan flatter David after he'd rebuked him? Uh, No, he told him some pretty heavy things were on the horizon. He told him the truth. He said, you know, God is going to forgive you. You're not going to die. He goes, but here, there's some things that are going to come down the pike that are going to be pretty rough. And so this is a grand scheme. But as I've indicated at least a couple of times, it ignores the real problem. How could David both restore and punish his son? How could he show mercy while also executing judgment. Well, David's dilemma mirrors the dilemma God had with the human race. God made man in his image and he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He shared fellowship with them, walking with them in the afternoon of each day. They had one simple rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God explained that in the day they ate of it, they would surely die. They would immediately die spiritually, being separated from their fellowship with God. They would begin to die physically, something God never intended. And they would also bring death into the universe. You see the result of their sin almost immediately as their son, Cain, killed his brother Abel out in the field. Adam and Eve were banished from Eden. It represented the fact that the human race has been banished from the presence of God. We are sinners by nature. And by choice, we deserve the death penalty. No matter how much God loves us, having created us, He cannot merely overlook our sin. How can we ever be restored to fellowship with God? Well, God devised a plan. Right there in the Garden of Eden, He told our parents that He would send His Son to earth as a man, as the seed of the woman. He would take our place And he would bear the penalty for our sin. In doing so, he would remain just because his law would be kept. But he could also be the justifier of all those who believed in Jesus. And so God faced this same dilemma in eternity past. And he said, here's the only way that it can be resolved. I will take the penalty myself and satisfy the justice so that I can also show the love. And so God has devised a means by which the banished are restored. We call it the gospel, and we declare it to all men everywhere. It's a universal plan in that any human being in any culture from all of human history can be restored simply by believing in Jesus Christ in his work of dying on the cross as substitute. Jesus is therefore the savior of the whole world, the Bible says, especially or effectively for those who believe. And so his death on the cross uh, is, if, uh, you know, is sufficient for any human being, any place, any time throughout history to be saved. And it becomes effective in the lives of those who do believe. I would add this. God's plan is extraordinary and he also goes to great lengths to implement it. The Bible indicates he is at work through both creation and conscience to draw men to himself who have never heard the gospel. He is certainly working through the preaching of the gospel as he empowers his church to go and make disciples of all men. 
if and when necessary, he can bring the good news of salvation even to those in a coma who are said to be about to die. Tragically, not everyone is saved in the end. But you can be assured that God is not willing that any should perish and he who devised the means for salvation is working to bring everyone to a point of decision before death. Now, verses 18 through 24, God's means to reach you who were banished cost him his son, as we've just said. We left the wise woman from Tekoa on the ground before David. Let's see his response to her. Verse 18, then the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant, she had just faked him out, and now she's saying that he's so smart, you know, that he can't be fooled. Uh, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or the left. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words into the mouth of your maidservant, to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. Uh, When Nathan came to David, he just he knew it was from the Lord. He he didn't ask Nathan, Nathan, who sent you? Uh, He knew it was the Lord because it spoke to his heart. He was cut to the heart by the word of God. Uh, This is a situation where David says, Joab sent you, didn't he? You know. Ah, man, what am I going to do with that guy? Uh, I can't get rid of him. I can't live with him. Can't live without him. You know, he's always killing people or coming up with a scheme. He's a great general. I mean, he's a he's a guy that you wanted in a street fight, um, you know, uh, and uh, but he had this crazy scheme. So he recognized this as the plan and the words of Joab, not the Lord. And she continues to flatter him. And so the whole situation is setting David up for some terrible times. Uh, there's no sense that this was from the Lord. And David does not react in any manner that could be regarded as spiritual. His reactions are totally unlike the time Nathan came to him. Still, he does act. Verse 23, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house. Don't let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house but did not see the king's face. David could not figure out a way to truly resolve this dilemma. He could not figure out how to restore his banished one as a father while also satisfying justice and keeping the law. He simply canceled the death penalty against Absalom and then he feigned some discipline by not letting him sit at court. So if you're, you know, if you're reading the Jerusalem Post and you, you know, there's the article in there about you know, Absalom returns, but he's never going to see the face of the king. Now, you, there's a debate in Jewish society about, is that harsh? You know, it, it's like, you know, people, sometimes people do things and then you say, well, yeah, but they're going to have to live with the thought of it the rest of their life. Okay, well, how about the punishment that they deserve too, you know? Uh, oh, that's punishment enough. And so, you know, so people are, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm sure people were split on this just like they would be today. I mean, there's people who say, hey, Absalom needs to die. He murdered his brother. I don't care what Amnon did to Tamar. Uh, you know, that's bad, but, you know, it doesn't justify murder. And there's others probably who said, hey, well, what's the big deal? You know, Amnon was an imbecile. 
Uh, I think he deserved to die anyway. David didn't kill him. And so, you know, Absalom, he's, why kill Absalom? And, and just, you know, David's not seeing him. And that hurts bad enough that he can't, you know, eat the delicacies at court and all that. And so, uh, but it doesn't resolve the problem. Uh, it, it does, you don't look at it and say, you know, it's not like years later when Solomon says to the two ladies who are arguing over the baby, he says, well, cut the baby in half. And you get half and you get half, you know. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, let her have the baby because I love the baby. Uh, and so, you know, it, it isn't a Solomonic kind of a thing, you know. It's just like, oh, all right, I, I've been fooled. Joab, you faked me out. I don't understand why David couldn't just say, get out of here. This is a joke. This is a lie. Joab, you're an idiot, you know. I'm not going to do any of that. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I just I just promised to do some made up thing. I'm not going to do that, you know. But instead he goes, oh, all right, you know, let's get Absalom back. And I, here's what I'll do. I'll spank him good. He'll never see my face again. Okay. And then here's the bad thing. Here's the worst. Uh, worse than all of that. There's no change in Absalom. Absalom, who murdered his brother and banished, was banished, you know, a kind of a self-banishment. Then he gets brought back and there's no change in his heart wrought by this feigned mercy that he's shown. He goes on to rebel against his father and seek to kill his father and take over the kingdom. More and more, people think God is like David in this story, pardoning without regard to sin and his broken law. The latest Barna polling data shows that millions of Americans believe that in the end, God will save everyone. Among Christians, one quarter, 25% of born-again believers, I mean, I know we'd have a lower percentage here, like zero, but... Um, if this were representative of the Barna poll, these are people who identify themselves as born-again Christians who live for Jesus. 25% of them say that all people are eventually saved or accepted by God and that it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same thing. God is love and He desires all saved. But God is holy and he cannot act as David did. He cannot ignore sin for the sake of his love. If he did, he would not be God because it's in his nature to be holy and just. So David was both a father and the king. As father, he wanted to restore his son. As king, he should not overlook justice. God is both father and king. His solution to the dilemma is the only possible solution. It cost him his own son on the cross to save his banished ones. And so as God, his law is satisfied, as, as king rather, as father, his heart is fulfilled. Every religion, every philosophy is an attempt to deal with the dilemma of this human condition. The solution men come up with, apart from God's revelation of the gospel, always involves some half-hearted compromise with the problem of sin. Religion suggests that certain works that you can do, which supposedly make you righteous, earn you salvation. But really, all that does is cheapen God's holiness. It elevates man and uh, devalues God. So, God says, I'm perfect. And the standard you must, must hit is perfection. And then men come along and they say, hmm, maybe if I knock on a bunch of doors and ride my 10-speed all over the world, uh, or 
you know, maybe if I do these 15, you know, works of righteousness or have this sacrament or this ceremony or whatever, maybe I will be as good as God. Maybe God's not really serious about how holy he really is. He'll relax my standards in the end. Or I'll die and I'll have a second chance. Because really, God, we wouldn't really allow anybody to go to hell, would he? And, stuff. and so more and more people think that way. They think, you know, you know God is holy, but, but they act as if he's not. They act as if they, they can be in the presence of this holy God by doing a few good works or uh, suffering on their own. Uh, and, and it cheapens the nature of God. Philosophies, by and large, ignore God altogether, and then they speculate that man is getting somewhere via his intellect and evolution. When I look back on uh, my uh, studies of philosophy at the University of California, uh, it's interesting. The idea always was that finally we're throwing off religion and Christianity especially so that we can get on with the real intellectual pursuits and figure out you know, how great man is. Uh, the truth is, if you look at the history of mankind, uh, we're not evolving, we're devolving. We're getting worse all the time. Uh, smarter, more technical, but technology doesn't uh, you know, translate into a better human being at all. There's only one way by which we can be made right, made whole, saved. It's the cross on which the Son of God died, taking our place. Now, obviously, in context, we're talking about human beings being the banished ones, but then getting restored through the gospel when you get saved. There's also an application for those of us who are saved for former banished ones. We can still become prodigals, banishing ourselves, as it were, to seek after some desire or some desires of the flesh. And the same cross by which we were saved, that's where we can find forgiveness and restoration. His justice satisfied, God can and will receive you back with open arms as your father. So if you're not a believer, uh, you're a banished one by definition. You've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But God has devised the way back and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. You're a believer, but maybe you're living in, not totally, but maybe just in one area of your life. As a prodigal, where you're going your own way, the Father is looking for you to return. You've banished yourself, but He is waiting for your return. Now, the king had to think of law and justice. The Father cried out for His Son. That is the heart of our Father in heaven, our King. He solved it by coming as a man and dying in our place, in your place. Alexander McLaren writes, and he says, It is you, you whom He wants back, you whom he would fain rescue from your aversion to good and your carelessness of him. It is you whom he seeks, according to the great saying of the Master, the Father seeketh for worshipers in spirit and in truth. It wasn't easy for God to restore his banished ones. It's not easy to believe and to be restored to him. But the way has been made by Jesus, by his coming as a man, by his dying on the cross, by his rising from the dead. Let's pray.